Well, it's New Year's. You probably knew that, I would suppose. Yeah. Christmas was last week. New Year's is a week later. Might have stayed up a little too late last night. And of course, I'm sure what you were doing was working on your New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions are funny things. They're usually shaped by a vision of who we want to be. Uh, think of my New Year's resolutions from last year. Uh, they're also shaped by many failures along the way. I, uh, the year before, I had run a lot. You know, I'd run in this thing in Memphis called the Road Race Series, which was a pretty big accomplishment for me. Even, but I ran two 5Ks, two 10Ks, two 5-milers, two 10-milers, and even a half marathon by the end of the year. Yeah, I know. Wow. Praise the Lord. Only by grace. I have a few witnesses here who can testify to this. And so going into 2022, I thought, man, I'm going to do even better. This is going to be the year that I run the full marathon. So I started training. I did the off-road series. I did trail running, which I thought I was going to die most of the time because my ankles can't really hold up to the roots that are there in the trails. But again, by God's grace, I made it to the end. You can just ask Matt Superdock. He'll tell you all about it as he waited for hours till I got to the finish line. <laughs> so I'm, I'm on a good path. I had set a goal to, to run a half marathon and then... The summer months as I'm training, uh, as I'm getting older, I tend to pull muscles that I didn't know. I look back and into my right leg, and I'm like, you know, if I just keep running, the pain will go away. Uh, apparently, that did not happen. And so I ran two 5Ks, and then I quickly was not able to run anymore. I would rest, and then I would try to run again away. I didn't reach my goal. In fact, I didn't run after the month of August. I'm just now starting to get back into it. But I had a goal based on who I wanted to be. I wanted to be a little thinner. I wanted to be a little healthier. Some of that's good. Some of that's bad. Some of it's vain. Some of it's for my family. But I wasn't able to get there. I wonder what vision shapes your 2023. And I wonder how you're going to get there. A vision of who you want to be. I was reminded of the folly of my vision for 2022, and I'm thinking about my 2023 and what ought to shape it. And I was reminded of this because I was able to get together with a few friends that we had not talked in about 10 years together. And as we sat there, we reminisced about where we thought we would be after 10 years. Some of it has come to pass. We're done with school. We have families. Others of it didn't. We've had rough patches in ministry. We've had rough patches in friendships, and we're not as much like Jesus as we thought we might be in 10 years. The circumstances we simply couldn't control. And as we had this conversation and talked about who we wanted to be in 10 years, who we were 10 years ago, and shaping the year to come, someone said, maybe the wisest words that I've heard in a long time. He said, you know, here's the thing that I've learned. You can set a goal to run a marathon. You might not get there. You can set a goal for a certain job. You can set a goal in your work, side of your control, and you might not get there. And he said this, but in every circumstance, every year is the opportunity to pursue Christ-likeness. I didn't end up achieving a marathon, but the pain that I had could have pushed me toward Christ or away from him. I could complain that I didn't do what I thought, or I could praise him that his plans were different and better for me. And no matter whatever circumstance, 
everything is a purifying opportunity to be Christ-like. This is what we've already sung, and we've prayed to God in prayer, refiner, all-consuming fire, purify me. Purify the longings of my heart. Every circumstance in your life is an opportunity to be purified by the all-consuming fire of our God. And I think the text this morning gives us a vision for why we should pursue that for 2023. I want to be clear about this. Set goals at your work. Don't just show up to work with nothing to do. Set goals in your relationships. Do that. But one goal that undergirds them all is God But I know that you can make me holy in everything. So no matter what my plans are, in all of them, make me more like you. And I think that this text gives you a vision that will sustain you in that no matter what 2023 brings. A six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook, and at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, And in his hand, he touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice, voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening, but don't understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds. Turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth of the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. This is the word of God. You may be seated. There's a lot going on in this text. I don't know if you noticed. I'm not going to explain every detail, but here's what I will take us through. What we see in this text is we see God. We see that this holy God makes a holy people, and he sends them out on a holy mission. We see a holy vision of a holy God, 
a holy God who makes a holy people and a holy God who sends his holy people on a holy mission. The big idea that I want you to remember is that our holy God forms us into holy people. If you lose everything else in all the details, I want you to remember that our holy God, people. So first, the, the vision here in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. We begin in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and him of his robe filled the temple. Now, in the year that King Uzziah died, since it make, makes an historical note, I'll tell us a little bit about the history that's going on here. We're in 740 B.C. That's a long time ago. Why is it that the Lord gives Isaiah this vision at this time? Well, the king in the southern portion of Israel, Uzziah, has just died. He had a long reign. And what Isaiah is not sure of, what nobody's sure of, is what is coming next. And the Lord's going to make clear to Isaiah that what's coming next is not going to be any fun. What's coming next is riddled with political turmoil and unholiness from God's people, which leads to judgment from God on his people. But he gives them, chapter 6, verse 1, we're in a time where the kings that follow Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz especially, will be those who do not obey God's word. We'll be in, in a time period in the time of Isaiah where the northern tribes of Israel will all be exiled because the Assyrian Empire is on the rise. And during this time, there will be many leaders of different nations. During this time in Assyria, during Isaiah's ministry, which covers somewhere between 40 and 60 years, we will see Tiglath-Pileser III, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, Sennacherib, and we will see maybe even Esarhaddon as kings of Israel. In the south, we'll see Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. When we turn to Babylon, it's much more uh, chaotic scene over there on the throne. Sometimes a king of Assyria is ruling on Babylon, but sometimes we get people like Meredith Baladon. Or maybe Marduk Ushaziv Usin. Names I'm sure that you're familiar with and mean a lot to you. But what's the point? Almost all of these names are in Scripture. Why is it that here God shows up and says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he sees God high and lifted up? And what he wants them to know is that though the thrones of the earth will change over and change hands many times over again, there is one throne that never changes its king. We could go all the way back into his, in the history of mankind and we could say in the year that that person died and we would look to the throne room of heaven and guess what we would see? Exactly what Isaiah sees. The Lord high and lifted up on his throne. We could go all the way into the future that we don't know yet and I can tell you with confidence that in the year that the last ruler of the earth dies, I will see the same thing that Isaiah sees. If the Lord gives me grace to see his throne, it's the Lord high and lifted up. You could take your least favorite or favorite political leader. Let's get controversial here. We'd say in the year that Donald Trump dies, guess what? When you look up at the throne of heaven, the Lord will be seated high and lifted up on his throne. In the year that Joe Biden dies, Guess what? You look up at the throne of heaven, guess who's on the throne? The Lord, and he's high, and he's lifted up. Take your favorite or least favorite senator. Take your favorite or least favorite person in this room. Take you. In the year that Mark Catlin dies, you're going to look at the throne room, and I'm going to be there 
and I'm going to see the Lord high and lifted up. Why is it important for Isaiah? Because in the midst of the political turmoil that he's about to see, the exiling of his people, the disobedience of God's people, and all the changing that happens in the thrones of men, Isaiah knows that there is one and only one that he can over all things. You don't know what 2023 brings. But I know this. Every morning that you wake up, if you go before the throne of grace, you know who you're going to find there. The Lord high and lift. To go before that throne every morning and pursue him. We see his vastness as it's just the hem of the robe that fills the temple. I could spend a lot of time on this. But it's just a sign of his vastness. In verse 2, we see what's happening in this throne room. We have seraphim are standing above him. They each have six wings. With two, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. Now, seraphim is just taking a Hebrew word and putting English letters to it. It's just burning things. Isaiah doesn't know how to describe them. They're these fiery, luminous angels that have six wings. With two, they cover their eyes. It's possible that they cover their eyes because even they, as these majestic, angelic beings, cannot look upon the holiness of God directly and survive. It's possible that they just do it out of respect. It's possible that it's both. And with two, they fly. And the picture is you have these majestic beings surrounding the throne of God. And these majestic beings are not receiving praise from anyone. Rather, they are flying around the throne of God. And here's what they say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. These majestic beings that are far more powerful and greater than we could ever imagine. If they enter this room, we would all be scared to death. They turn to the one who is holy and seated on the throne and they proclaim that he is other than even them. He is higher and more lifted up. He is holier than they are. As a result of their voices, Singing around the throne, the foundations of the doorways shook. So I was reading this text. We often talk about the volume at which we sing in this place. Pastor John has already talked about the uniqueness of what we do as we gather as God's people on Sunday morning, that he is inhabited by our praise. I just, I don't know if it was a vision from the Lord. I don't think it was a throne room. It's just what came to mind. But I picture that somebody standing outside be holy. If the volume of our voices were so loud because of the majesty of our God in response to who he is and what he's done, that somebody outside, maybe the neighbors around, literally felt this place shake. Isaiah in this picture, he's right outside the holy yet, so he can't enter into his presence without being consumed. But he gets to see a little bit, and as he's at the threshold, it shakes from the loudness of their singing. I wonder if our volume is a sign of our response to the greatness of our God. And the temple was filled with smoke. I think another sign that trying to hide the immensity and the intensity of God's glory from killing those who are in the throne room with him. Now Isaiah is absolutely consumed throughout his entire book with the holiness of God. What does it mean for God to be holy? Pastor John has mentioned this throughout his service leading. He is completely other than we are. 
And it's hard to wrap our minds around that. But when we look at the book of Isaiah, God is described as holy 38 times. The title used for him, the Holy One of Israel, occurs 25 times. It only occurs six other times in the entire Old Testament. Isaiah is consumed with the holiness of God. But God is not just holy. Anything where he is or what he described as holy in the book of Isaiah, his sanctuary, his holy mountain, his city, Zion, the way of holiness with his people, the Sabbath day and the feast that they partake in. Why are they also holy? Because they're related to him. God is set apart in his holiness. He is completely other than anything else in his creation. And if you want to know what that looks like, just read Isaiah 40 to 46. A little homework for you. I want you to go home and read Isaiah 40 to 46. I'm going to give you a little taste, but it's just an appetizer. And I want you to note how many times does God compare himself to something else and say, there's no one like me. In other words, it's not just the word holy in the book of Isaiah that shows that God is holy. It's every description of him almost in the book of Isaiah. And God says, hey, I know that you're going through politically uh, treacherous times. Maybe in your daily life, in your family, in your relationships, in your own inner being, there's tumultuous times. And he says, fine. If you want to find someone else to trust in during these times, go for it. Bring them to me and let's have a conversation. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 40, 18. God wants to invite these comparisons. To whom then will you liken me? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Isaiah 40, verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Isaiah 46, 5, bring him. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He wants you to try to compare other things to him because he knows that when you do, you will find them wanting. In the book of Isaiah he is incomparable and he is holy in his being. Isaiah 43, 10. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who is like me? Is there any God besides me? The only one who can rightfully claim the title of God is also holy and separate and other in his creating. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one who is God alone and created all things is also holy in his sovereignty. I am God and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place, and I will do all my will. The one who is alone and separate and holy as God, who is holy as creator, who is holy in his sovereignty, is also the one who is, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And there is no God apart from me in Isaiah 45, 21, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. And therefore, in Isaiah 45, 22, what does he do as the only God who is the only creator who is sovereign over the universe and the only one who can save? Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 
is 100% committed to the holiness of God. There is no one like him. This is why we sang in the hymn, holy, 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 only thou art holy. There is none beside thee perfect in power, in purity. There is no one like him. He is the holy God, and he is worthy of all the praise that we could bring. If you are not a believer this morning, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, what I have just said is that the only hope, God, there is no other God. You stand condemned in your sin because he is holy. And yet here's the incredible thing. He invites you into relationship with him. Why? Because our holy God doesn't look around and only choose people who are holy. There would be none in his people. Rather, he chooses a people and then makes them holy. Why? Because our holy God forms a holy people. And we see this in the next couple of sections. We've seen this holy vision of God who is high and lifted up. But now we're going to see a picture of the refining of Isaiah, the prophet himself, and then the refining of his people, Israel. Look with me at verse 5. Isaiah sees this, again, standing at the threshold. Can't quite enter yet because he knows that if he enters into this presence, he will be consumed by the all-consuming fire. And when he looks at the holiness of God, his own sin is revealed. He says, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. I want you to pay attention to the next part. This is a prophet of God. How does he describe his own sin? This isn't some person who lacks eloquence. It's someone who is speaking the very words of God's presence. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Oh, he could have said anything. But he describes himself the best of who he is. And he says, even that is unclean in his presence. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Now that's not surprising if you've been reading Isaiah up to this point. They are a violent, murderous, treacherous, deceitful, oppressive, and hypocritical people. They say that they want to love God and they live unholy lives. But in the midst of the holiness of God, sin is revealed. I know that I'm unholy because when I look at me and the uncleanness that's in me, and then I look at the king, the Lord of armies, I know that I don't deserve to be in his presence. Brother and sister in Christ, if you have come to faith, you might have forgotten that you don't deserve to be there in the first place. I wonder if you need to revisit your first love and realize the grace by which you've come into the presence of our holy God. And here in verse 6, answers the question, how is this unholy one and how are these unholy people going to go before the throne of grace without being consumed? Because as Pastor John said, one of the great conundrums is how does a holy God invite an unholy people in relationship with him? And here we see it, that he must make us holy. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, that is to Isaiah, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth, my uncleanness. 
he touched something unclean and what happens? Equity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Our holy God makes for himself a holy people. We're going we're to have to come back to this whole idea of the altar, that there's nothing at least that I can find in the Old Testament or any other Old Testament scholar that there's, there's something unique about this coal. It does represent fire, right? We've had a lot of fiery presence here. We've got these fiery six-winged creatures flying around the throne. We have the all-consuming presence of our God, and now we have fire from the altar of God where sacrifices would be offered, brought to Isaiah, and his lips are purified with fire not destroyed. <laughs> I love the song Refiner. One of the reasons I love it is we say refiner and then we say all-consuming fire. If he is an all-consuming fire, how is it that anyone is left when he passes by? Because by his grace, he makes his people holy and purifies them. By nothing other than the declaration of God in his mercy... Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for, now Isaiah can stand in the presence of God. The thing that separates Isaiah apart is his being in the presence of God. If I could talk to the kids here for a second. Adults, listen in, because this is often the best part of the sermon, to be honest with you. You're going to want to be stand out from your friends. You're going to want to stand out from among your siblings even. And it's often those things that you hear people praise you for. Maybe you're really good in school. You're smart. Run after that. Maybe you have a beautiful voice and you sing well. Maybe you're hilarious and funny. Maybe it's a physical feature. Your beautiful hair, beautiful eyes. Maybe it's your height. Maybe it's the fact that you're short. But it causes you to stand out and people say, I know that that's you because of this. This is a natural thing to want to be set apart, to want to stand out. And as you get older, it's going to be about being set apart based on what school you've gone to, where you work, who your parents are, where you live, what street you live on. The things may change, but the basic principle remains to be praised by other people. I think that this is a longing that God says, only I can satisfy that. And what I want you to pursue is realizing that you ought to be set apart. I want your desire to be. My prayer for you is that you are set apart because of your faith in this holy God. That what people say about you is I know that Sam, Molly, Sarah, Andrew, Haddon, I know that. I know, that, I know that that's Jace. How do I know that? I know it because of his faith. That's my prayer for you. People may not praise you for that. Your friends might not. Your teachers might not. But there is one voice that will praise you for that that is greater than all other. This one who sits high and lifted up, he looks at that. And says, it is good. And there is no greater voice to say that. And there is nothing greater to hear than for this one to say, you are mine. You are my holy child. Adults, it's not much different for you. 
You're still trying to set yourselves apart in different ways by your friend group, by an accomplishment at work, by a reward that you receive, by the degree that you get, by the church that you go to, whatever it might be, by the clothes that you wear, by the shoes that you wear. Right? I mean, these set me apart in a negative way probably. But we're constantly looking to be set apart in some way. And that's good. There's an individuality to who you are. But there's also a comment that when people look at us, they say, I know that this is a child of God is because they are set apart by their faith in Christ. This is what sets apart Isaiah in the midst of an unclean people. He has gone before the throne of grace and he has cleaned him up. He has made him holy to where he can stand in the presence of the throne room of God and not be consumed. Rather, he is now addressed by the king himself. <laughs> Coming into the throne room, into his presence, instead of being consumed, the king now talks to him. A holy God forms for himself a holy people, and he sends him on a holy mission. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Isaiah says, after what I've seen in the throne room, I'll go. Let's do this. I'm going to follow the king of all of creation, the king and the commander of the armies of heaven. Let's do this. This is possibly be depressing. Isaiah says he's going to go before he knows what the mission is. Then the Lord tells him the mission. Here I am, send me, verse 9. And he replied, that is the king said, go. <laughs> Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Wait a second. Whoa. I'll tell you what I would be doing. I'd be like, yo, I, you're the commander of heaven's armies. This should look different, right? I, I just saw this holy vision of who you are. What's going on? I want you to notice Isaiah's reply before we get into that. Then I said, until when? Notice, Isaiah agreed to go on mission for this holy God, the commander of heaven's armies, before he knew what the mission was, and then he hears it. It might not be what he expected, but he doesn't back down, right? If, if Pastor Joshua, Pastor John, Pastor Luke, if the Lord, if we were at an elders meeting and the Lord said, all right, guys, here's the throne room, now here's your mission. Go and say to the people of NBC, keep listening, but don't understand. Make the minds of this people dull, deafen their ears, blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might actually turn back and be healed. Yeah, sign me up. It's not what we signed up for. What is it that causes Isaiah, after he hears the mission, to say, until when? I think there's two things. One, just the beauty of who God is in his holiness. He's captured by the beauty of God. It is often the truth of what God says that makes us want to back away from him. But if we see the truth of who he is as also beautiful and good, we will not back down from who he is. 
So my question to you is, how often do you put before yourself the beauty of God and his holiness and his word? How often do you go to the throne of grace and prayer? How often do you gather with his people, to fellowship with his people, to be reminded that he is, in fact, holy, holy, holy? And the second thing is, it's not just that he saw God. He saw a temple that was filled with God's glory. Isaiah knows the end of the story. He knows that the preaching now that's going to harden the people's hearts will eventually turn glory. In other words, whatever hardship he faces now, he has the beauty and goodness of God to sustain him and a vision of the future that this is not the end. Blind eyes, deaf ears, dull hearts, that is not the end, but through the preaching of his word, he will also make his people holy. His glory will fill the earth. The good news in this text, and we can see this as a hard text if we want to, I like the text, and here's why. You're preaching, you don't have control over what happens with the word when you preach it. And that's a good thing. Because you're not God. You're not the one who is holy, 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 seated on the throne. You are not the one who created all things. You are not sovereign over all things. And you are not the one who is redeeming all things. Your role is simply to proclaim his gospel. Let him deal with human hearts. You have no power to change them. So we could look at this and say, that's a hard mission, but the hard part of it is up to God, not us. If eyes are going to be opened, it's up to him. If ears are going to be unshut, then it's going to be up to him. If hearts are going to be made soft to receive his word, it's going to be up to him. And praise be to God that it is, because if it was up to us, nobody would ever believe. He has simply armed us with a proclamation of his gospel. And the beauty of his king then replies, Well, he says, until when? And the news doesn't get any better. Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth of the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Well, jeepers, man. What do we got going here? So the people, are. when Isaiah hears this, there's a divided kingdom, but the northern tribes aren't exiled yet. Judah hasn't been exiled. There's still some sort of semblance of hope that there can be restoration without destruction. And God says, well, just to disabuse you of that notion, no, I'm going to bring judgment. Because of my people's sin, I'm going to bring the Assyrian army. And the way that it's described just a little bit later is they're like a flood who comes up to the neck. But God will will leave a stump. And do you see the stump that remains? How they are described? They are the holy seed. Here's the hard truth about this, and we sang about this again in Refiner. He is burning away everything that is unholy in his people. Individually in Isaiah, but also in creation. It is true that God all things new, you got to burn away some of it. But God is not this, you know, it gives this image of felling a tree. God is not this one who's just kind of haphazardly strolling through the forest with an axe. Maybe this one I'll cut down. Chunk? He is much more like a doctor with a scalpel who is cutting out cancer so that the body can survive. He is 
purifying his people. I don't know if any of you are into gardening. I know some of you are. I really like gardening, and one of the reasons I guess I wanted to understand Scripture better. If you want to understand the Bible, do some gardening. One of the things that is true about gardening is you have to cut back a plant for it to grow stronger. Notice what he says here. It sounds like it's pretty depressing, and he gives this idea that though a tenth will remain in the land, so only 10% remains, it's going to be burned again. But then like the terebinth of the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is a stump. If you know anything about gardening, you realize that this is actually a word of hope. You realize that God is purifying his people of all of its sin so that only a holy seed remains. And from this stump that remains, as long as the roots remain in the ground, it will grow back. And guess what? It will grow back stronger. I know this because I tried to cut down this wild bush in my backyard. It's right up against the wall. I mean, it's just this gangly thing. And I went down and I cut it all the way at the base. And I was like, I probably don't have to. And then spring comes along. You know what I see? Boop. Little sprout. Green leaves starting to come from the stump. And then a week later, man, that thing's starting to put out some real branches here. Then two weeks later, that thing is bigger than it was before. Why? Because I didn't dig it up from the root and throw it in the trash so it could be taken away. God hasn't dug up his people from the root to throw them away, to cast them aside. He has purified them to leave a stump so that they can grow back stronger. This is what he's doing with his people. And we know that he's going to fulfill his promises ultimately because from that holy stump, guess who comes? It's Jesus. Well, before I get to Jesus, let's talk about you. The purifying of Israel was the ridding of their idols. The gods that they wanted to serve that they thought were more valuable than God himself. And if he's going to purify you and you're going to sing, refiner, purify me, guess what's coming? The purifying presence of God. And he's going to take away that which you think is necessary and precious in your life to give you something better. And it will feel like God is digging you up from the roots. But Christian, that is not possible because you have been grafted into Christ himself and Christ cannot be dug up from the roots. You will grow and you will bear more fruit. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. I am the vine, you are the branches. Some of you will be pruned back for what purpose? So that you can bear your faith in Christ and you're going through a difficult time and you look ahead at 2023 and all you see is hard times ahead. What you see is the purifying presence of God to rid you of your idolatries, to rid you of your sin so that you might be made more holy in his presence. We have a holy vision of a holy God who makes for himself a holy people. This last bit here in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, that describes the difficult ministry of Isaiah. Every gospel writer writes this about the ministry of Jesus. That Jesus came, and the reason that he spoke in parables is so that some would not understand, so that some would not see, and so that some would not perceive. Why? Because all of history is headed toward Jesus. I mean, the ministry of Isaiah, sure, until cities lie waste. Isaiah only lived 
till I think the 680s, even after the ministry of Isaiah, even after a little bit of hope with kings like Josiah, the people of God would still not believe in him and they would go into exile, they'd all be scattered from the land and the temple on earth would be destroyed. And people thought maybe the throne in heaven has changed. But we celebrated last week and in this season is that the throne has never changed hands. Because what God has done in sending Jesus is he has come in the flesh to do what no other human king could do. He came to take on our sin, to open eyes, to open ears, and to change hearts. It's been curious to me for a long time that in this description of the throne room, Isaiah doesn't describe the Lord himself. Did you notice that? Did you notice that he described that there's one seated high and lifted up, but he didn't describe who he was. He said the the robe filled the temple. There was smoke in there. There's seraphim. The place shook, but he doesn't describe the Lord himself who is seated on the throne. I believe the gospel writer of John fills us in on this. In the book of Revelation, we have another vision of the throne room, and the elders and seraphim say here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Except when John looks at the throne, he describes who he sees seated on the throne. Do you remember who it is? It is the let, yeah, that's right. The commander of heaven's armies in the book of Revelation is a slaughtered lamb. How does that make any sense? How is this glorious in the book of Isaiah? Well, to the gospel writer of John, which is the same author as Revelation, he ties two texts together in Isaiah. He takes this vision of Isaiah 6 And this vision of a people who have eyes that won't see and ears that won't hear and hearts that are dull and won't receive the word of God. And he combines it with Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. And here's the way that John describes what Isaiah sees in the throne room in Isaiah 52 and 53. He sees Jesus' glory. He sees Jesus' glory. Isaiah, in the Old Testament looks up at the throne room, and he sees Jesus' glory. Why? Because I think what he sees in the temple of heaven is the drama of redemption taking place on the altar. Why do I think this? Because I don't think he wrote about who he saw in Isaiah 6 until Isaiah 52 and 53. I want you to pay attention to this language because it's crucial that you see this. This is part of, this is what made him undone. Isaiah 52 Starting in verse 13. You remember how Isaiah's vision began? He sees him high and lifted up. Isaiah 52, 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be what? Raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. This is the one who is highly exalted on the throne of God. This language in the book of Isaiah is only used for God himself until we get to the description of Isaiah 52 and 53. And John read from this earlier. What is he going to do? What is this glory of God that is highly exalted and lifted up, just as many were appalled at you in verse 14? His appearance was so disfigured that he didn't even look like a man. His form did not resemble a human being, so he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them. They will understand what they had not heard. Do you see what's happening with the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53? There was no seeing, no hearing, no understanding, but now something is happening. 
Something is happening. One is coming who will bring understanding, who will open blind eyes, who will open deaf ears. 53.1, who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form for him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Have we gotten to God's glory part? Verse 4, yet he himself bore our sicknesses. Why is he so disfigured? He's taking on our sins and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Remember the song. Why was he pierced? He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb. Remember the vision in Revelation? A lamb as though it had been slain. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And he, and who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence and not spoken deceitfully. The Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed his holy seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Do you see what is happening here? The suffering servant of Isaiah, this is the glory that he saw on the altar high and lifted up. John said very beautifully, in a sermon, he said, you can't get the glory of God without the gore of Jesus. Why? Because the glory of God is revealed in the gore of Jesus. Because why? Because our holy God, what does he do? He makes a holy people. He was crushed for our iniquities. His, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. How does he make a holy people? A holy God shows up in an unholy world, lives a holy life, and dies for his unholy people. He takes the punishment that they deserve. He resurrects from the dead. He takes the throne over all the creation. I wonder... What's going to set your vision for 2023? Is it they just want to be a little thinner? Just want to be a little healthier? You want to run a marathon? Want to get that promotion at work? All of those things are good. But undergirding all of that, whether you succeed or you fail in them, success in the eyes of God is setting a vision of the king who is high and lifted up. And understanding that our holy God is forming for himself a holy people. And that includes you. 
So I want your prayer for 2023 to be, Lord, show me your holiness, that you might make me holy, that I might look like you in any circumstance. Let's pray.